There are four scripture readings this morning. The first is from the book of Ephesians. Therefore I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. The second reading comes from the Gospel of John. I am the good shepherd. I know my own sheep, and they know me, just as my Father knows me, and I know the Father. So I sacrifice my life for the sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. The third scripture is from Genesis, chapter 11. As the people migrated to the east, they found a plain in the land of Babylonia and settled there. They began saying to each other, let's make bricks and harden them with fire. In this region, bricks were used instead of stone, and tar was used for mortar. Then they said, come, let's build a great city for ourselves with a tower that reaches into the sky. This will make us famous and keep us from being scattered all over the world. The final reading this morning is from the book of Revelations. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with him, with them, and he will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. I saw no temple in the city, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are, at its, are its temple. And the city has no need of sun or moon, for the glory of God illuminates the city, and the Lamb is its light. The nations will walk in its light, light, and the king of the world will enter the city in all their glory. Its gates will never be closed at the end of day, because there is no night there, and all the nations will bring their glory and honor into the city. Good morning. This tells me what to say. I better turn it on. It's great to be here today. I'm actually here most Sundays, but I'm not up here, but I'm up here today. And um, we're going to be talking about calling as a metric for success this morning, which really gets at how do we define success and how do we know if we're successful? And uh, these are the kind of questions that run through your mind when you go back to your high school reunion, which I got to do a week ago Saturday. We could do an auction on, uh, we'd do a guessing game about, um, we're not going to do that. It was my 30th reunion. We all had the same reaction. 30 years, do you believe it? You know, a lot of hair was gone, a lot of weight was gained. And I haven't been to one. I mean, we had, I guess they have reunions reunions every five years. I I just, for whatever reason, hadn't gone. But I figured, I did this calculation, that now that I live in New York City, I'll be cooler if I go back. And it really didn't work out that way, but that's okay. But it was fun. It was fun. It was good to see everybody. But you're just kind of comparing notes. 30 years is a long time. And who's doing well? Who's not? How do we define doing well? You know, it's all, it's all there in the sort of subtle conversations and the mixing 
that goes on. And it's kind of one of those natural markers, I think, in our lives where we assess, you know, expect plan versus reality versus execution. Am I where I thought I would be? Am I where I wanted to be? We, we do this. Uh, we do it at the holidays. Uh, Thanksgiving is one of those times, at least for us, where we typically will see some people that we only see once or twice a year. And again, you do that kind of comparison thing. Christmas is that way as well. Birthdays are that way, especially birthdays that end with a zero. Yeah, And, uh, you know, we're just kind of trying to figure this out. How do we get this sense of where am I and am I on the right track? Am I success? What's success and is that me? And I don't know about you, but I also, I, I think it's a pretty, pretty important question because as I look at the people around me and the people that I sort of track with, and, you know, once you get past the reality TV show called Facebook and you really know what's actually going on in people's lives, this, this is my observation. Most people don't get better with time. I don't know if you agree with me or not, but I just, you know, they don't get more kind, they don't get more peace-filled, they don't get more secure, they don't get more generous, uh, they don't get happier, they don't. You know, they, they collect, we all do, we all collect hurts and wounds along the way, but they just sort of often will shrink inside. And so I think having the sense of where, where we can head that is a good place to head and, and how we can get there is, is huge. And I... We had this kind of one-off Sunday here as we're all recovering from Thanksgiving. I thought, I just want to throw this in there, into the mix, before you get into New Year's resolution season, because it's coming right along the corner. So that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about calling uh, as a metric for success. And I'm going to do it in three parts. I'm going to talk about the myths of calling. The myths of calling, uh, these are things that really aren't about calling at all. I want to uh, pitch a robust model of calling. That'll be part two of the message this morning, a robust model of calling. And the third piece is to talk about uh, called to work. I'm just going to talk a little bit about our, our kind of paid vocation part of our calling. So that's where we're headed this morning. I begin with the myths of calling. And there are six of them. There are six of them. The first myth is that calling is for clergy. The concept of having a calling is for clergy. It, it originated somewhere in the early Middle Ages, this kind of two-tiered system of society where the clerics, you know, the, the priestly class was closer to God than everybody else. And everybody else had to work too to pay the bills for the priestly class. You know, that's how it worked. But it, it, it sort of originated then, probably a carryover from some of the pagan religions and even the Old Testament. But it was, kind of, it was contrary to what the New Testament says that where all of us are a priesthood of believers, that, that God works through everybody. And so that's the first myth, that it's just for the clergy. They're the only ones who are called, and the rest of us just kind of do our thing. The second myth is that calling is about professions that officially help people. The helping professions. I, I noticed on the subway one time there was an advert, and it had a picture of a guy pushing somebody in a wheelchair and it said something like you came for an internship and you left with a calling and then it was a it was some college or grad school but this is something that is this is sort of the secular version of the clergy it's that if you do a job that officially and professionally helps people you have a calling the rest of us work for a living but you have a calling and uh, there's, that's a myth. 
It's a myth because most of us have ran into a teacher or a doctor or somebody else who is officially a helper who wasn't helpful. (laughs) Right? Like, that's a calling. I don't want one. And every field of endeavor, in every field of endeavor, there are opportunities to bring real benefits to other people. It doesn't just have to be a helping profession. So that's the second the second myth. Third myth is that calling is the same as your dream job. So if you go to the New York Times and you search for calling, you'll see that it's equated with doing work that you love. It's equated with your passion. There's a website called The Muse, which is a great website if you're in career transition. Lots of excellent resources, but they say basically the same thing, that you know, you're, it's your passion, whatever your passion is. Well, your calling can be your passion, But sometimes our passions lead us astray, don't they? Sometimes things we think will be amazing are terrible. And sometimes we think, sometimes things that we think are going to be terrible, you know, somebody coaxes us or guilts us into doing it, end up being great. And I would just say, it's a myth that that if you're constantly monitoring how excited you feel about your work to decide whether it's your dream job, passion, calling, you'll probably just be neurotic. It's not going to help you. It's not going to help you. And the the fourth myth is related to it, and it's that your calling will be easy. If you find your calling, it's going to come easy. And there's a whole whole line of thinking in, in psychology called flow. I don't know if you've heard it. I can't say the name of the Hungarian psychologist who came up with this idea of flow, this place where you, you experience heightened concentration and productivity and connection with what you're doing. And it's like, something like that. Um, well, it really is. It really is. But anyway. And it's, it's a helpful concept of concentration and focus and productivity, but it's not the same as easy. It's not the same as easy. I mean... If you're called to be a doctor, is that going to be easy? Is going to medical school going to be easy? Is paying for medical school going to be easy? Is doing 24-hour t- turns in your residency going to be easy? Is getting out and dealing with the business of medicine going to be easy? Is dealing with us, your sick populace, going to be easy? It's not going to be easy, but it's still a really legitimate calling, and I think at times, maybe it's you're in a phase where you're preparing for a calling and it's not easy, or maybe just your calling's not going to be easy. It's just going to be your calling. It's just going to be your calling. Another, another, uh, another myth, myth number four, is that calling is once and done. It's, you just get zapped and it, it alights on your brain and then you just go do it and it, you just stay in that lane for the rest of your life. How many of you remember what you wanted to be when you grew up? Remember saying that? Remember answering that question? How many of you are actually doing that thing? If you're a veterinarian, you have a high probability of, of wanting to do that thing. Nobody else does. Nobody else does. It's not a once and done. I mean, just a biblical example is Moses. He started out, he was a prince of Egypt, 40 years. He was a shepherd in the desert, 40 years. And then he was kind of this revolutionary political leader, 40 years. He had three callings, really. Even Jesus. 30 years a carpenter. I have a friend who is an academic dean at a college, and he says, we are preparing students today to have 
to work and to be able to transfer easily between at least up at least five different careers, eight jobs over their lifetimes. They're going to move a lot. That's the way it's working today. So it's calling's not a once and done. And calling is not just about work, which is the last myth. And it's about other things too. It's about our families and a bunch of other things. And you just take family, for instance, and it just reinforces both. Family is a calling, and family is never a once and done. Because we're always, everybody in our family is, is growing and changing, and their needs are growing and changing, and we're growing and changing, and we're always having to adapt. We always, it's, it's, you got to be agile to deal with this idea of calling. So it's not a once and done, and it's not just about work. Six myths about calling. That's the first section of the sermon today. So I want you just to erase all those ideas from your memory. Forget you ever heard them, because now we're going to move on to a robust model of calling. And um, you know, just, just the idea of calling is the idea that there's somebody calling you, or summoning you, or inviting you into something. It's a very personal word. Going back to high school reminded me I had been called into the principal's office once or twice. <laughs> Some of you have been called for a job, interview, or to receive an offer, or to have a piece of art that you've produced, purchased, or you've been called into the CEO's office for a choice assignment or a promotion. You've been summoned, invited into something. It's very personal, and a lot of times it's just purely positive. And I think there's four areas of calling that uh, that God calls us into in our lives. I, I, I'm trying to be as comprehensive as I can with this. And if you like to draw, I would draw a circle in the middle and then draw four spokes out from, from that circle in the middle. And one of those spokes is family. You know, all of you came from a family. Maybe a painful memory, maybe a painful, you know, not something that you're proud of or like to think about too much. But family is part of all of our lives. Or we wouldn't be here. And part of our calling is to relate to our family, to our parents. You know, in Ephesians 4, which we just heard, it says, you know, live a life worthy of your calling. Because it's God that has called you. And then Paul will go on and he'll talk about father, or he'll talk about parents and children, and children and parents. And there's a shift that flows with children and parents. That we start with young children who need to obey their parents, and we end up with old children that need to honor their parents. But it's still a calling. It's still a critical part of our lives that we can't neglect. Paul then talks about husbands and wives, and he does it in Ephesians, he does it in Colossians, same pattern. If you're married, you have a calling to your spouse. Part of your part of what success is like as part of your life is is figuring out on an ongoing basis, on an iterative basis, that relationship and renegotiating it. If you have children, that's a calling. And again, that's spelled out there in the scripture about the responsibility that parents have to children. It's part of our lives. It's part of our thing. And you know, at the reunion, there were sort of two different versions of success that I could pick up on. One was the freedom, uh, the freedom picture, and it was people that had. Uh, here we are, thirty years from high school. They have no attachments at all, and they were that was their their vision. Nothing technically wrong with that at all, but that's that's really what they were proud of. And then there are other people. Who were, it was about their family, and they had kids, and some of them had 
grandkids. Um, that was scary. But they had, they had kids and grandkids, and that's what their thing was. And it, but family is a really important part of our calling. It's not something that we can neglect for any of the others. So family is part of our calling. Second part of our calling is our calling to a Christian community, to a church. And that's got to be on one of, that's one of those spokes that come out from that center. It, as, you, as, you, as you flow out of that, live a life worthy of your calling, Paul probably spends more time saying, this is how we should relate to each other. This is how we should care for each other. This is how we should encourage each other. This is how we should invest and build in to each other. That we need to be part of a spiritual community that's centered on Jesus, guiding us through this world, and it's part of our calling. In fact, he says each of us have gifts and abilities, and we have things to bring to the table to enhance this community and make it stick together and help it grow to be strong. One of the things that we say here at LMCC is that part of our purpose is to serve, to move people to serve the church. Well, the church is us. It's the people, and it's part of our calling. That's why we say that. A third calling is our calling to work, to our work, to our paid vocation, to use our talents and skills to make an income and to make the world better. I'm going to go into detail about this in a few minutes, but I'll just remind you that for most of us, we will spend more waking hours of our adult lives working than in any other single activity. I think it's a relief that God cares about our work, so we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. Then the fourth spoke out of the wheel of calling is the, the idea of our, of our city, that we're called to serve our city and this is also something that's part of one of the purposes, the explicit purposes of our church. And that, by that I mean our neighborhood, our community, our broader, broader, uh, the broader connectivity of, of, of humanity that we get to serve and, and reach out to. And one of the interesting things and the exciting things about the church community is it's not a community that exists for itself. That we embrace a calling to serve others, people who are different from us, people who don't believe like we do, who look different. It doesn't matter. We're not an island unto ourselves, for ourselves. We do have our own sense of tribe and identity, but it's meant to be used in service to the world. And both in Ephesians and in Colossians, as Paul starts from this idea of calling, he talks about the family and the work and the other relationships. He always ends up with some outward vision. So those are the four areas of calling that we all have. Family. Church, work, and city. And we've got this circle in the center. And the real question is, who is in the circle in the center? Now, this is church, so you can probably guess what the right answer is, right? But who's really in the center? And whose voice do we really listen to? Whose voice does Disney teach us to listen to? our own right and in fact most of us have been shaped from a very early age to trust the inner voice more than any other voice and there's kind of a direct competition in the center of this calling piece between us and the true caller in his book the real american dream andrew debanco is a uh, is professor at columbia he says that 200 years ago in the United States, everybody would say that God was in the center of that circle. They wouldn't necessarily have agreed about what that exact, how that all played out. And we had plenty of religious differences 200 years ago. But we all would have agreed that your primary purpose in life 
is to find God's will and to do it. We just would have agreed. And then he says that around the time of Abraham Lincoln, that shifted. And so the primary purpose became the building of the, the American Republic, which is still an ongoing project. He doesn't pretend that it's, it, was, it was without its, its speed bumps and detours, and he doesn't pretend it's done. But he calls that civic religion took over in kind of the center. And then came the 60s. And so for about the last 50 years, he says the self is in the center of the circle. And we live a very individualistic life where we only trust ourselves and our instincts, even though they ironically often lead us astray. And he says, by putting a self in the center, we've separated ourselves from transcendence and we are incapable of satisfying our ache for meaning. A powerful diagnostic of our culture. And I just want to contrast that sort of fuzziness and that malaise with Os Guinness, who wrote a book called The Call. And uh, it's probably the classic Christian book about calling. And this is what Oz says. I think we have the quote on the screen. Calling is the truth that God calls us to himself so decisively that we are, that everything we are, everything we do, and everything we have is invested with a special devotion and dynamism lived out as a response to his summons and call and service. So it's a comprehensive sense of centeredness on this God who cares about everything that's part of our lives and wants to his love and his grace and his power and his truth to flow through it. He is in the center. He is in the center. And this is this is kind of This is really interesting to me because when we think about calling, a lot of times we think about the thing that we're supposed to do. What's the something that I'm supposed to do? And what Oz is saying is you're, you're called to a someone more than you are called to a something. That it's this personal relationship with the caller that will inform you as you try and figure out and figure out and experiment and test and change course through all these sectors of your life, through family, through church, through city, through work. And, and, but it's the center that really counts. And it's the center that's really primary. And it's the center that gives a sense of life and direction and hope and power to all the others. To all the others. You say, well, where's, where's money? Where's that fit in? Well, money is a resource. It's a tool that we use in service of our callings. Our bodies would be another one. Our time, which is really about our attention. I would say our attention is probably our most precious commodity today. It's another, it's another tool or resource that we stored in service to these callings. First to Jesus in the center and then to the four areas. And our talent. Our giftedness. Our capabilities. It's another one. But they're not the main thing. The main thing is this relationship with a caller who says, I've called you to myself. I've summoned you. I've invited you. And I want to help you use what I've given you to make the world a better place. So I would call that a robust model of calling. I would even say that's a success metric that you can use just to evaluate your life. You can, and if you, want me, if you want to take me out to lunch, I'll draw it for you on a napkin. You know, God in the center, family, city, church, work, they all come out. 
what, what's God's agenda for each of those things for you at this time in your life? What's it look like to discern that and lean hard into that and go after that? I think that's a grid we can use. And so now I want to focus the third part of the, the, start, the talk this morning on just this idea of work and our calling at work. And this gets into the reading and this picture of two cities, two ancient well, one ancient city, one future city. And the first was from Genesis 11, and we have the, to- we have the Tower of Babel story. And it's this... It's it's a city about the first. It's a story about the first skyscraper. We should be able to appreciate that here in skyscraper land. They were able to go higher because they had the technology to make bricks. It's kind of interesting too. But what's really interesting are their motives, and this is in verse four. It's in your program. They said, "Come, let's build a great city for ourselves with a tower that reaches into the sky." This will make us famous and keep us from being scattered all over the world. So they're really on a quest to establish their identity and security through this building project. We're going to build a tower. We're going to be famous. We're going to be secure. We're going to do this for ourselves. We work for ourselves. I was just talking about talking to somebody last night because I work with people in work and he said I'm thinking I want to work for myself they were working for themselves completely and totally and they thought that if they did if they were successful they would be able to say we are secure we are safe we are comfortable and we've established not just a kind of physical security from danger but we've established our identity We've, we've put a mark in the sand that we matter. We matter. We've proven we matter. So that's one city. It's Babel. Ancient city. And then it's contrasted with a second city. Jerusalem. Jerusalem. The new Jerusalem. And there's, there's, we've, we've meditated on this many times here at LMCC. And it's a great picture of... of of life and vitality and the absence of night and pain and crying and sorrow and death, all gone, all erased. But what I want you to see this morning is what he says towards the end. He says, you know, the nation will walk in its light and the kings of the world will enter, enter the city in all of their glory. Not God's glory, the king's glory. And then in verse 26, it says, and all the nations will bring their glory and honor into the city. So this is a different picture, obviously, than Babylon. It's, it's, it's a picture still, though, of human work and effort, because that's what produces glory and honor. You know, our glory and honor comes from uh, our talents employed to their fullest. It comes from us doing the things we were made to do and do well. Whether build or protect or... These types of things. And they're bringing all of that into the city. They're bringing that, all of that into the city. And so if in the first city, in Babel, they work for themselves. In this city, they work, but they bring their work to God. And they bring it and they show it off for his honor. It's probably important to note that 
their individual work is still there and it's still clearly connected with them. It says each king comes with in their glory, their splendor, the accomplishments that they bring. And each person or each nation brings its honor and its, and its glory into the city. And so one, one, of the, one of the distinctions of a Christian vision of eternity is that it doesn't involve the erasure of individual people or souls or even lives or accomplishments. What it shows is the pulling together of those things to honor our maker. So the individuality is there. It's just channeled in the service of something bigger than each of us. And it's a glorious picture. If you know the story in Genesis, you know where it goes. The staying, the holding together that they longed for didn't happen. It blew up. These people that had a plan for security and identity ended up fragmented and insecure. That's where it landed. And I would submit to you that that's what happens whenever we work, to just solely build a name for ourselves. It blows up. It ends up in fragmentation it ends up in insecurity. That's where it lands. That's where it lands. And it's contrasted with a different picture of work. Work done in the service of God. All kinds of work. You know, it doesn't say just the clergy brought their glory into the city. It doesn't say just the helpers brought their glory, their glory into the city. It says everybody did. So work done in the service of God actually ends up benefiting everybody, including the worker. And so this is kind of the key. It's back to the center of the circle of calling. It's the big question of who do we go to work for? And what's it mean to do your work, whatever it is, for God? Do you put a sign on your desk? It's for God. Or do you say that after somebody says, oh, it's a good job? I just do it for God. You can smell the weird factor, right? Like, this isn't going to work. It's so much more about what's going on inside us, isn't it? And who we do it for. And who we do it with. I really do. And I think it's, 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 it's a heart, attitude, and perspective that we can cultivate if we want to, if we want to. If somebody comes to me and they say, Chip, I just, I'm not sure my job, what I'm doing is my calling, what should I do? It's, I guess that's, that's what pastors say, but I say, well, go do your work today for God. Do it for him, not for yourself. Well, what's that mean? I'm not really sure. Just offer it to him. As you go, as you, as you head off to the office or the, the, the theater, the studio or, or wherever it is you go, just say, God, I'm doing this for you. Help me see what that looks like. It's a really quick prayer. And if it's coupled with a sincere surrender that we say, God cares about this part of my life, but I don't, I don't know exactly how to navigate it, he'll show you. He will. Today it's for God. Tomorrow it's for your neighbor. You know, it's, it's, there's people involved in all the work that we do. And sometimes we think of our neighbors as the people we live near, and we think of the people we work with as a different species. But they're neighbors too. 
And whether they're your colleagues or your supervisor or your, your investors, your backers or your, your vendors, they're neighbors, they're people. And we're called to love our neighbor through our work. And if you, whatever you do, you produce goods or you produce services, goods that are really good and services that really serve benefit our neighbors. So right away we've got benefit going on, first for God and then for our neighbors. And then I'll say there's some other questions we can think about over time, like how does the work that you do fit in with the broader narrative of the Bible? I think there's answers to that that help hook it into a transcendent story that gives meaning. And I think the ultimate question of calling that we need to wrestle with iteratively, because it's not a once and done, is how do I best use the gifts God has given me for the maximum benefit of others? But that's not, a one, that's not a quick conversation. How do I use the gifts God has given me for the maximum benefit of others? That's really the ultimate calling for our work. We have talents and skills and capabilities. And how do we use that? How does he want me to use that for the benefit of others? But that's work. That's the work calling. And, you know, it was 10 minutes. So I, I don't want to be over. I don't. I want to suggest that that just ices it and that's over. That makes it simple, but I think that it it gives you some handles to wrestle with it, and it gives you some guidelines and ways to think through it or to enter into the dialogue around it. So as I said, people talk to me about what their calling is and how to figure that out, and particularly those of us who are younger, we tend to have a lot of angst about whether or not we're going to miss it. I'm going to miss it. Am I missing my calling? It's like, it's like when you get into a, an elevator and then you suddenly realize it doesn't go to the floor that you're going to. It's called an elevator fail. And it's a terrible feeling. And sometimes we have that feeling about our lives and various aspects of our callings. You know, am I on the wrong track? And I wrestle with that too. I struggle with that question too. And what, what I land on and what I come back to is that calling is so much more about the caller then it's about us getting it right all the time. And I just want to remind you of these words from John 10 as we close. Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd, and I know my own sheep. I know them, and they know me. And just as my Father knows me, and I know the Father, I know them. So I sacrificed my life for my sheep. My sheep listened to my voice, to my call. I know them, they follow, and they follow me. And then I give them eternal life, and they'll never perish. So it's all about his voice. You know, proximity to the caller leads to clarity. It's really that simple. And so if you're leaning into that, and you're pursuing that, I would say you don't have to worry about missing it. Because when he's ready, he'll let you know. Let's pray. God, we constantly face questions about where we are in our lives and are we where we're supposed to be and are we successful? Are we where we want to be? What's our next move? And Lord, I pray that this morning somehow you would reassure us that you've got this, 
that you are the caller, the shepherd who knows his sheep, who calls them by name, you know us intimately. That if we'll listen for you and seek you, if we'll embrace the picture of a for you kind of life, you will show us. You will when you're ready. And through the course of that interaction over time, we'll have a sense of what success looks like for us, fulfilling the callings you've given us, and we'll know we're on that road. So when we, we face these, the season of the year where we assess or other experiences that remind us or just bring to mind this, these questions about who we are and where we're going, guide us to the place you want us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.